Okay, we're going to turn now, and we're going to spend some time not just talking about our community and what our community is doing, but we're going to start listening to the Word of God. So we do this every week. We open up the Bible because we believe the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So please turn, if you have a Bible, to Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 1. We're finishing up Proverbs chapter 1. This summer, we're calling this series through Proverbs, Scandalous Wisdom. The big idea of the series is that it is scandalous to listen to and obey God. More and more, our culture is going to look at us and say, you are bizarre. Like you're doing what God told you to do. You're not just listening to your heart. And we, faultingly maybe, and with ups and downs maybe, are going to say, yes, we're going to, we're going to listen to God and try to do what he says. This is called biblical wisdom. We're going to try to obey God. Say, hey God, you've told me what to do. I'm going to try to do what you've told me to do. As we move into the ending of chapter 1, we're calling it Wisdom Cries Out. Wisdom Cries Out. We see wisdom personified here in verses 20 through 33. Wisdom Cries Out. Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs as well. You could uh, grab that and uh, follow along with us. Also, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm like, I got to slow down. You can keep that Bible as well. If you don't have your own Bible, take it home. We'd love for you to have one that you can read at home. So we're going to be on page 527 in that black Bible. Um, And I wanted to set this up with an experience I had years ago, about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, My son was about six years old at the time, and we went camping. So just me and him, the rest of the family was doing something else. I think they were at a swim meet or something. We're going camping with a bunch of stuff from our church at the time. uh, And it was somewhere, some state park in Texas. And my son and I brought our tent, and we were excited to go camping together. And there was just a hint of rain maybe coming. You know, I looked at the forecast. It looked like, yeah, it might rain, might not. Who knows? And fortunately, I'm not the best planner in the world, but I, but I was a Boy Scout. Uh, so when we were setting up our tent, I was like, oh, okay, well, we need to set up on high ground because it might rain, right? And you never really know in Texas. But if it does rain, you know it's going to be a thing typically, right? Like how many of you are from the Pacific Northwest and just moved here recently? Some of you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the rain. I just apologize for you. Because I hear in those places when it rains, it's just like this nice little sprinkle, right? That's not how we do rain here. If we have rain, don't have it very often. But if we have it, it's generally going to like wash some things out of your yard, you know? And so we set up our tent on high ground. We went to sleep. I heard a little pitter-patter while I was sleeping. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm glad I set it up on high ground. Apparently it is raining, but we stayed dry. We were okay. You know, just a few drips on the tent and stuff. Little little condensation here and there, but but mostly dry. Next morning we got up, you know, dawn comes, we get up out of our tents and we're looking around and it's total mayhem. Like people are going nuts. Uh, I, I see people like emptying the water out of their tents. You know, their, their tents had filled up with water. Other people, their tents had like literally been washed away across the campground. People were kind of scared. They were all wet. They were shivering. They were kind of freaked out and panicked. And I was like, wow, like the Boy Scout thing paid off. I'm glad. I'm glad we put the tent on high ground. If you know me, most of my stories don't end this well, right? It actually worked out this time um, because a storm came and we'd prepared for it, right? And here's the crazy thing. It was just a hint of a warning that there might be rain, right? Like I heard there might be rain. Oh, okay. I might set up my tent on high ground. But what we're going to see in this text is that a storm is coming, And I want you to hear the seriousness of the text, hear the seriousness of God speaking through the scriptures. This is not just a maybe storm, but a storm is coming. 
A storm is coming. Difficulty is coming. To some degree, the life that we live when it's charmed and good and everything's going well is a beautiful gift from God that's a little token of what heaven's going to be like. But our lives are not going to be consistently storm-free. And there's an ultimate storm coming as well. Not just the storms of living in a broken world, but there's an ultimate storm coming, the Scripture says, a storm of final judgment. And so the Scripture says, a storm is coming. Listen to the voice of wisdom. Wisdom is crying out that you would take shelter in the Lord. He is your only place of safety. So let's look at the text together. It's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. It's going to be some hard things said in the text, and so we're going to read the text and then just pray that God would give us ears to hear. Proverbs 1, verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Um, hard stuff in this text. I, I don't like hard stuff. I like, I like when Jesus says, come to me, I love you, right? So I'm going to read the last verse one more time. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. There's hope. A lot of hard things in this text, but there's still hope. We can listen to him. We can pay attention. We can come to him. So let me pray um, that his spirit would meet with us, that he'd help us to hear what he wants us to hear from, from some tough stuff here. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would teach us and, and shape us and mold us. Uh, God, give us the gift of open-mindedness, open hearts, that we would receive what you have to say. Uh, we have emotional reactions to hard things. Um, they're things that, that upset us, that kind of freak us out, that don't cut with the grain of our culture. So we pray that you would make us submissive, that we would listen and learn at your feet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the whole series of scandalous wisdom, um, to obey God, to listen to his voice, is scandalous. It's crazy in our culture. And, and we've said again and again, as a church, we've always had a strategy and a posture of trying to be as gracious and as kind and as not weird as possible, right? But we also want to recognize that obedience to Jesus is just just weird, right? It's scandalous. It seems crazy. And here we see wisdom personified as this woman crying out to us, calling out to us to listen to good things, to the truth that will save us and help us and shape us. And as we listen to her call, 
I see three main things that we can learn about wisdom and how it works in our lives. Three main things. One is that wisdom pursues us. And that's really encouraging because we run away, right? But wisdom, God's grace, comes after us. It chases us. It pursues us. Wisdom calls out. Wisdom pursues us. The second thing that we're going to see is that hard stuff in the middle. Wisdom judges. Wisdom judges. And we need to hear that. We don't hear that a lot in our culture. We're kind of anti-judgment. We're kind of anti-truth, really, frankly. So we need to hear that wisdom judges. And then thirdly, we'll see that wisdom is a choice. Wisdom is a choice. We are a church that loves and relishes the sovereign grace of God, his kindness to us in Jesus. That's not anything that we did. It's all about what, what he did. Sometimes in those kinds of atmospheres, we can downplay human choice and responsibility. We have to face it. We are real moral agents and our decisions matter. Wisdom is a choice. And we want together to be a community that makes wise choices. So number one, wisdom pursues us. Wisdom pursues us. She's a lady that's crying out to us, right? Uh, Again, look at verse 20 and 21 where it introduces this idea. We'll see this in 20 through 23, but I just want to start with these first two verses. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. We talked about Hebrew parallelism, so we got this kind of repetition in three different ways, right? She's going to the busy places. She's going where we are. She's chasing us down, right? I wanted to say she's like at the mall, but we don't go to malls anymore, do we? Wherever you go, right? She's there. She's at our little basement where we're looking at our screen, and she's crying out to us, right? She's coming after us. Wherever you are, the busy streets, in the marketplace, at the HEB, at the shopping center, wisdom cries out. She's pursuing you. She's saying, come to me. Listen to me. I love you. I want what's best for you. And this is really, really reassuring. Uh, Wisdom, number one, is personified here in a beautiful poetic way. Uh, The way we understand Proverbs in general is the The first audience is probably teenage boys. Second audience, probably teenage girls. And then third audience, the rest of us, right? Uh, Not a lot of teenage boys and girls in here. So, you know, the rest of us can still listen to and have much to listen to and to learn here. But kind of the the tip of the spear is aiming a lot at teenage boys here. And I don't know if you know this, but a lot of times teenage boys are interested in women. And so women occur again and again as a kind of poetic motif in this book. It's like, There's the wise woman that's beautiful and attractive and awesome. You want to listen to her. You want to follow her. You want to pay attention to her, right? And then there's folly, the personification of folly, the adulterous woman, the forbidden woman, the seductive woman. Don't listen to her. She's just trying to trap you. She's just trying to kill you, right? So it's a motif that comes up again and again throughout the book. And so what I want you to understand is this is a beautiful poetic device. Wisdom's not actually a lady, though, okay? Uh, Wisdom is the truth of God. But we do get this beautiful kind of picture of something that we get a fuller picture of later on in the sense that wisdom at its basic level is the truth of God that's chasing after us. But at a deeper level, wisdom is God himself embodied in Jesus. So this personification of, of wisdom is this beautiful woman calling out to us. We see it even more clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's said again and again in the New Testament. These themes are kind of contrasted. You know, I mentioned that two weeks ago. Someone greater than Solomon is here, Jesus said to the people listening to him. He's talking about there's even greater wisdom to be found in him himself. But again, the idea here is this attractive, beautiful, gorgeous woman 
actually wants what's best for you. Wouldn't that be awesome if this incredible, gorgeous, beautiful woman really wanted what was good for you? And the Bible's saying, yes, that, that is true. This is wisdom crying out to you. Listen to her voice. Pay attention to what she's saying. We also see the beauty of her chasing us down wherever we go. And that's a very, very encouraging for us. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how human beings basically run from God. The gospel is that God runs after human beings. Like we, we go the other direction. We see God, we know he's there, and we're like, nope, don't want you. And we go the other direction. And the good news of Jesus is that he left the comforts of heaven. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself to enter into our world, to take our sin upon himself, to chase after us. Wisdom is pursuing you. The truth of God is chasing after you, even when you ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. There should be encouragement that she is crying aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. All the busy places where we're doing other things, wisdom is knocking at your door. Listen. Listen to me. Pay attention. This is so encouraging. It's so easy for us to ignore what wisdom has to say, but here we're being encouraged to listen to her voice. As a church, we've always made it a strong priority that we would, like wisdom and like Jesus himself, try to meet people where they are. Uh, So as a church, what you'll see here is this weird combination of things that I, I hope is just biblical balance, but I think it may be becoming more and more rare in our society it's that we, we really do relish traditions and old things and these ancient truths in this book, but we're going to try as much as possible to bring it down to the street level and translate it and communicate it in a way that people can understand. Because we see that to be what wisdom does. Wisdom calls out to us in the street, doesn't stay in the ivory tower doing her own thing, but she chases after us. And again, ultimately, that's what Jesus does. Jesus chases after us. He loves us. He pursues us. He shows us grace. She goes on, and she says this. Verse 22 says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? We're rejecting the truth. We're rejecting what is good and right and true and beautiful. Again, Romans chapter 1 says we see God, we know he's there, and we're refusing him. So we have to keep reminding ourselves that being foolish and being simple and being a scoffer in the book of wisdom, in, in the Proverbs and in Psalms and the other books of wisdom, it's always a moral position. It's not a fact issue. It's a posture of our heart. We have plenty of facts, and we're still foolish, right? Right? Like, as a culture, we have more facts available in our pocket than, than any person in the history of civilization. And yet, we're probably the most foolish people in the history of civilization. The Scripture distinguishes those as, as two separate things. And even just saying that, you're like, mm, I don't know about that, Dave. I just want to encourage you to keep chewing on it, okay? We're really, really smart, and we're really, really stupid at the same time. And that's what the Bible is saying here. It's a moral position. It's not just a fact, knowledge issue. So how long? How long, simple ones, will you love being simple? It's not how long will you factless people live without facts. And it's not your fault. That's not what she's saying. She's saying you're simple and you love it. 
You're ignorant and you love your ignorance. You're foolish and you love your foolishness. And it's not just you, it's me as well. It's the human condition. We're running from God. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate? Knowledge. The flip side of this is God says in Isaiah 55 to come to me, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. I will give you I will give you food. I will give you wine. I will give you milk. I will give you things that you can't afford to buy. I will feed you. I will give you my goodness. Just come to me. And then the flip side of it in our reading is, how long will you love starving? How long will you love not having food? How long will you love this stupidity that you're living through? I grabbed a picture um, at our house of our dinner bell. We have a little dinner bell in our kitchen. I don't know if you can tell, there's like a door, and then at the top right corner, it's this uh, metal bell. We used to have a ceramic bell that we used, and I think we rang it so hard so many times, it just cracked. It just died, right? A lot of meals at this house, and we would ring the, mail, uh, ring the bell at mealtime. And our kids learned, if they were hungry, that they should listen for the ring of the bell, right? And that's really what wisdom is saying. It's like, I'm calling to you. You're hungry. I can feed you, right? That's the that's the biblical posture of wisdom. And it's stupid to say, I'm hungry, but I'm going to go eat this trash. I'm hungry, but I'm just going to play a video game. I'm hungry, but I'm just going to continue on with my porn addiction. Because what's going to happen? You're going to continue to go hungry. But wisdom is crying out, no, come to me. I will feed you. I will fill you. I will help you. And that's what wisdom is saying to us. God's rule, God's law is, is real food and real drink. Psalm 19 says that his rules, his laws are sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Throughout scripture, we're told this. God's word, God's law, even God's commands. And this is kind of confusing for us. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther helped us to understand the negative view of God's law. And John Calvin, the other reformer that's kind of famous, helped us understand the sweet honey view of God's law. Let me set it up this way. If you're not walking with God, God's law is condemning, right? Because it shows us our failure. And so in that sense, Martin Luther had this kind of negative view of God's law and how it broke us and killed us and showed us that we weren't living up to God's standards of holiness and we needed the gospel. So that's a good thing. And Romans talks about this and Galatians talks about this. That's a real biblical work of God's law that it would kind of show us where we fail. John Calvin is famous for showing the sweet side of God's law. And actually, if you go back and read their stuff, Martin Luther understood this as well, and it was worked into his catechisms. Um, but he's just more famous for his negative sound bites about the law. John Calvin said there's also the sweet side to it, right? And he, it was sometimes called, theologians call it the third use of the law. And what this means is that once you come to know that Jesus loved you so much he died for you, you actually want to obey him. You actually want to do what he says. He's, he's made it sweet. And so the third use of the law is now that I know I'm an adopted son, I actually want to obey my father. Before I was a rebel and I thought he was just out to get me. And, and sometimes we go through this in natural life, right? Sometimes you grow up and you're like, oh, my father was not an idiot. He actually wanted my good, right? That depends on the dad you had. I know there's some variation there. But, but we can have that change of mind in our relationship with God through the gospel, 
through the gospel, through the good news of what Jesus has done, we can come to realize, oh, he, he loves me. He wants to feed me. He wants to help me. So Proverbs 123 says it this way. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So if you hear wisdom saying, hey, stop being an idiot. Come and follow me. That's not just to make you feel ashamed, right? That's not just to make you feel like an idiot and feel stupid. What wisdom is telling you is that sin is killing you. Let go of it. And we don't have to walk in perfect obedience and then he'll love us. What we do is we just say, this sin is killing me. Jesus, help me. And he forgives and he helps and he walks with you and he begins to pour out his spirit to you and implant his word in you. He begins to change your mind slowly, piece by piece. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act and then he'll love you. He's just saying, turn at my reproof. I told you, that's killing you. Turn and say, you're right, it's killing me. Admit that you're on, on rock bottom. You've, you've hit the bottom like you're at the end of your rope. Admit it and say, yeah, I need you. He says, behold, I'll pour out my spirit to you. I'll make my words known to you. The prophet Joel reflects this, Joel 2.28. It's going to come to pass afterward. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to give my spirit to anybody, anybody that asks, all kinds of people. It's not just for special people. It's for anybody, anybody that asks, I'll pour out my spirit. The apostle Peter says that's fulfilled in God's people, the church, by faith in Jesus. There's this other prophecy from Jeremiah 31 that's reflected in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 quotes some of it. In Hebrews 8, it says, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with God's people. In those days, declares the Lord, I'm going to put my laws in their minds, and I'm going to write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. That I will be their God, they will be my people is like the most common covenantal promise in all of Scripture, throughout all the covenants, throughout all the ages. How does he do that? He does it by supernaturally writing his words on our heart. How does that happen? It's by us turning at his reproof, right? The, the New Testament word is repentance. Repentance doesn't mean I'm perfect and now God has to love me because I'm so perfect. No, it means I recognize I'm a sinner. I hear his reproof. I'm broken. Yeah, this is killing me. Jesus help me. We turn to him and he heals us and he begins to pour out his spirit and he begins to write his laws on our hearts. We begin to follow him in tripping steps. We fall, we get back up, but we're following him. We're listening to his voice. We're listening to his wisdom. He actually changes our heart. I was reading a, a book on how to teach the Bible with our intern, Chris, Chris Johnson, who did uh, lead worship for us. He did a great job, by the way, too. I don't know. I think he's gone now. Thanks, Chris, wherever you are. Um, we were reading a book on how to teach the Bible, and it was talking about how it's one thing to change your mind. It's another thing to change your behavior. But the Bible is always talking about the need for our heart to be changed by God's Spirit, right? So like the fruit of the Spirit thing in Galatians. In Galatians, it says we can either bear fruit of living according to our own flesh and our own strengths, our own wisdom, and that's going to be bad stuff, disobedience, broken stuff, whether we're uh, openly rebellious or kind of sneaky religious people. Either way, if we're depending on ourselves, it's going to mean brokenness. Uh, but there's the fruit of the Spirit. As God pours out His Spirit and we depend on His Spirit and obey Him, good things start happening. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these things are good and, and beautiful things. And those begin to be developed in us as uh, the roots of our heart are changed. We bear new fruit. And so this uh, author, David Helm, was writing a book on how to teach the Bible. He says, when it comes to applying the Bible, the first thing to be said is that uh, biblical teachers should aim for a change of heart. We're not merely looking to apply God's truth to the minds of our listeners. 
as important as that work is, nor are we content merely to put their hands and feet to work, as necessary as Christian service is, right? So, so don't misunderstand this. He's saying we want to change minds. We want to change your behaviors. But how are we going to do that? Only by reaching the heart. He says, we pursue the hearts of our listeners. The heart is the seat of power, and the heart is the agent of change. So again, here, the way that's termed in Proverbs language is, listen, I'm telling you, you're doing the wrong thing. Turn at my reproof, and I will pour myself out to you. God says, I will give you the gift of myself. He's a person, right? So again, there's this beauty, kind of the veiled ancient view of the personification of of wisdom as this beautiful lady that comes into our life. We know that even more personally as this Jesus who loves us, who fills us with his spirit so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and be reconciled to him. Listen to his reproof. Turn, pay attention. I will make my words known to you. I will pour out my spirit to you. And we will begin to change wisdom pursues us by grace. Wisdom also judges, and this is the hardest section. Um, just so you know, again, you, you might have come here, and this is like your first Sunday here. We, we, are, we are generally a syrupy, sweet kind of place. I don't like saying hard things, but this is in the Bible. It's the truth of God's Word, and so we want to kind of face hard things head on. And so we see here that wisdom judges in verses 24 through 28. Starting in verse 24, because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently but will not find me. It's a really haunting warning. This is scary language. Wisdom judges. Uh, and we just have to recognize, like, okay, we live in a day and age where our culture hates judgment, hates truth, hates right and wrong. And that gets on us, right? Even as those that are committed to Jesus, we often hate judgment, hate right and wrong, hate truth. Hate no more second chances, right? A day is coming when there's no more opportunity to turn. So this is a real warning. There's going to be a day where there will be no more turning, where it's ultimate, right? We live in the day and age where there's, there's the opportunity to turn. Turn, listen, trust him. He loves you. That's what he's, that's what he's saying to us here. And so we just have to recognize, just put it on the table, like, we don't like judgment. Let's just be real about that and then move on and say, what what does the text say? Okay, we don't like judgment. All right, but it's talking about judgment here. It's talking about calamity. It's even talking about some harshness here of, I will laugh at your calamity. Um, I will mock you when terror strikes you. Just some hard, hard language here. Um, So number one, I just want to assure you that we're not going to now change strategies as a church. We've generally been a nice church. We're not going to turn and say, okay, our number one strategy now is to mock people, right? To scoff at them, and that's going to bring them into the kingdom. No, that's, that's actually not what's happening here. I think this is truth itself mocks us. So illustration, I could really feel deep down that I can fly. I could jump off a building, but gravity will mock me. 
the truth of the universe that we live in is going to laugh at me. So there's a harsh seriousness here, right? And again, I think this is aiming at primarily teenage boys, right? So it's just trying to be in your face and gritty. These are the boys that are watching the action-adventure movies, and they're being warned, hey, it's going to happen to you. You're going to be that bad guy that gets defeated. And we don't want to be that bad guy, right? The universe, the truth, the way the world works, it's going to mock us. It's going to show us that it doesn't make sense to turn from God. There's also some interesting stuff textually. Uh, Bruce Waltke is a, a commentator I was reading on this. He said there's, there's almost some kind of like alliteration that kind of makes it sound even like more aggressive, like the way this sounds. If you were to read it in Hebrew, it sounds like more in your face even, right? Where the, the art is following the content. Calamity is coming. Whirlwind is coming. Storm is coming. Difficulty is coming. If you continue to walk away from Jesus, it's not going to be good. It's going to hurt you. It's going to be painful. And again, just that's not what our culture often believes. It's not what our culture is telling you. I just want to ask you to think about it. Like, why? Why don't I ever hear this anywhere? Isn't it weird that like for thousands of years, people knew there was such a thing as judgment? People knew there was such a thing as, as difficulty and, and pain and danger, but we're in just this weird place now in culture. We're like, no, it doesn't exist. I don't even, no, I don't even listen to it. I don't want to pay attention to it. That could be... It could be a sinister ploy to get you to miss the warning. Could be. Jesus talks about judgment. I often say if you have a hard time with the church because the church has been corrupt, you got good reasons for that. There's been a lot of corruption in the church. If you have a hard, hard time with uh, organized religion, you got good reason for that. There's been a lot of messed up stuff that's happened in the name of organized religion. But I always encourage people to, to go to Jesus, look to Jesus, right? Let Jesus work on your heart. Read the Gospels, read John. And read Matthew, read Mark, Luke, read, read all the Gospels and get to know him personally, right? And then deal with all the other stuff later. Uh, when it comes to judgment, Jesus actually talks about judgment as well. And so just wanted to read some of his quotes. Some of these are from Matthew, Matthew 5, 29. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your body parts than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your body parts than your whole body going to hell. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus warns, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then finally, Matthew 18, 9, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, I just want to clarify, I don't think Jesus is actually encouraging you to maim yourself, but I do think he's trying to wake you up, kind of like the author of the Proverbs is trying to grab us by the scruff of our neck and say, this is real. A storm is coming. And Jesus is saying, this is a big deal. It's, it's more important that you would listen to God's voice, then you would just indulge yourself, right? Better to get rid of a body part than, than to go to hell. And that's the contrast. Again, I don't think the method is chopping off body parts. I think the method is, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I see that I'm in trouble. And so we see here that Jesus is constantly reminding us of the reality of hell. You might have even noticed that Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 are basically a repetition of themselves, 
Like it was important enough that Jesus apparently said it twice. He might have said it 20 times and Matthew just wrote it down twice. But he's saying hell is real. Often when Jesus would describe hell, he would use the Greek word Gehenna. This is a place name outside of Jerusalem. So I have a picture here. This is what Gehenna looked like. This is a, uh, a dump of trash on fire. So in a lot of places, people burn their trash. We often bury it in our culture, which is kind of interesting. We don't smell it as enough. It's hidden from our eyes. But in their culture, they would burn it. It was always burning. The fire was always going. The fire was never put out. It was constant. It was grotesque. It smelled bad. They would dump dead bodies there. They would dump trash there. They would dump dung there. Um, it was just a horrible, disgusting place. That's what Gehenna was. A place outside the city where they burned the trash. And the fires were always burning. It was a horrible place. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to, want to be close to there. It was also the place in the history of Israel where they had sacrificed children. So that was such a shame to their people that they had burned children and sacrificed children that they just made it a forever dump. And that becomes the word for hell. And that's the most common word that Jesus would use for hell. Theologians debate this. Um, I'm not so worried that you agree with all the traditional views of what hell is, but I really do want you to understand what Jesus says about hell and that that is that it exists and it is horrible. You don't want to be there. You don't want to go there. And the Bible teaches that there's this kind of ultimate end for things, that there's an ultimate and final storm, and that you can no longer argue with the universe anymore. And that this day is coming of, of real judgment. And the only place that we can find shelter is in Jesus. And so, again, we're not, we're not often a, a pushy, make a decision right now kind of people. But here in the Proverbs, this is what God is saying to you and to me. He's saying there's going to come a day when you can't put it off any longer. Make your decision today. Run to me. Don't put it off. Times are desperate. When we're lulled into complacency, because the time we live in is this weird time of the mixture of heaven and hell, right? We kind of live in a place where hell is growing and heaven is growing side by side, the crossing of the two worlds. The good news is that heaven's going to win. There's been a really popular show the last few years that talks about the upside down world. It's kind of a sci-fi fantasy show. There's like this creepy world where things are broken and scary and they call it the upside down world. Um, here's the thing. I think we actually live in the upside down world. But the good news is that heaven is breaking in to the upside down world. I believe that it's like hell has been taking over and things are going bad and everything's falling apart. And God continues to show his grace and good things continue to happen in our world just because of God's incredible kindness. But this growing hell, Jesus came down and he planted a flag and took over when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he says, rally around this flag. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so the good news is that Jesus is defeating hell. He even said it pretty explicitly when he was talking to uh, Peter. It's interesting. They went to a place where there was actual devil worship, pan worship taking place there. It was sometimes known as the gates of hell, one of the scariest places that he could have taken his disciples. So envision it this way. Jesus is like, hey guys, we're going on a field trip. I'm going to take you to the satanic temple, okay? And there he asks them, like, what are people saying about me? And 
different ideas are going around. And Jesus is like, well, what do you say about me? And Simon Peter is right at the time when he gets his name changed to Peter permanently. He said, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is heaven, who is in heaven, has revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are now Peter. Peter means rocky. You're now rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. The rock, not just of Peter, but of his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So my theory is we actually live in the upside down world, but God is turning it right side up. And he planted the flag through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's calling us to rally around him by faith in Jesus, saying, come to me and things will go well. Bruce Waltke, commentator I love to read, says this about this harsh wisdom judging us. He says, wisdom rejoices in turning the present upside down world right side up. Wisdom rejoices in turning the present upside down world right side up. When wisdom overturns folly, when humility topples pride and life swallows up death. So at one level, we hate judgment as a culture. We're just grossed out by it. We don't like right and wrong. We don't like judgment. But at another level, if, if you've ever been betrayed, you want judgment. If you've ever been abused, you're longing for judgment. If you've ever had cancer, you're longing for judgment. You're looking for a day when all those things will be destroyed. And God says that day is coming. But in the present time, we're told through the letters of Peter that God is calling out to people, patiently saying, turn, come to me. Because here's the thing. It's not like the judgment of all the wicked people over there and then us good people, we get off on the good side because we're so good. No, the Bible story is we're all on the judgment side. Only Jesus is on the good side of that judgment. And the only way that we can avoid that judgment is by clinging to Jesus. It's by being found in him, by trusting in his righteousness. He's our way of escape. So again, going back to Romans 1 and this purposeful ignorance, this willful ignorance that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 and he condemns this extreme immorality that we see in the rebellious world. Then he turns his guns on the religious people in Romans 2 and he says, you're just as bad. If you think your religion will free you from the judgment you're wrong. Only Jesus will free you from that judgment. He's our only hope. So do we want you to be good and religious? Yes, of course. We want you to be good, right? Give us money, serve in our nursery, do all those things, please. But that's not enough to escape the judgment. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so wisdom is crying out. Wisdom is saying, prepare for the storm. Prepare for the coming whirlwind. Recognize that judgment is coming and a day will come when there's no, no more crying out. Verse 28, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but, but will not find me. That's a horrifying picture. And I hope you hear, if you've read your Bible much, you hear that's like an opposite of some of our fa- favorite verses. Did you notice that? Proverbs is saying, watch out, there's going to come a day when I will not answer. You'll call and I won't answer. You'll look and you will not find me. Jesus says, if you search, you'll find me. If you knock, the door will be open to you. Jeremiah 29 says almost the exact opposite of this verse in Proverbs. 
they're in, they're in exile. Uh, God's people have been so bad. He says, I'm just going to kick you out of this place. You've, you've not stood for what I've told you to stand for. So your whole country is going to burn down. I'm going to send you in exile. You're going to be in this foreign place. And you're going to feel like I've completely abandoned you. But in 70 years, I'm going to come back and we're going to return you back to your place. Now, whole nother sidebar, that whole theme of being returned from exile is not really fulfilled until Jesus comes back. But it started 70 years after the exile for the people of Israel. They started coming back to their place and Jesus is the one that fully fulfills that as we come back to God through him. But he says this as he starts to make his promises of grace. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So again, the scripture is clear. There will come a day when there's no more calling out, when it's game over. And so what does that mean for us? The application is seek him today. (laughs) Cry out to him today. Call on him now. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah 55 says. Judgment is real. We don't like that, but it's real. Judgment is righteous. We don't agree with it, but it is righteous and it is God's prerogative. We are not righteous. We don't like that, but we can find hope in Jesus. Time will run out. We don't like that. We, should, we think we should be given forever time, but time will run out. Don't say I will get around to faith sometime in the future. Turn to him now. Ask him for help. Finally, we see that wisdom is a choice. Wisdom is a choice. Um, we are responsible people. Uh, our choices matter. We're going to see this in verses 29 through 33. My huge theological summary is this. Um, if we are saved, that's God's fault. Okay? If we are condemned... That's our fault. That's all of theology summed up in a couple of short phrases. I I hope you appreciate that. If you want to debate me on some of the finer points of double predestination and all that, buy my lunch and we can talk about it for hours, okay? I would love to talk about it more with you. But the big idea is salvation is God's fault. Judgment is our fault. Verse 29, he says it this way. Verse 29, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord... Because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So, translation, judgment is our fault. We do it to ourselves. So there's this kind of misunderstanding that goes around a lot, and I think it's kind of, kind of a twisting of Christian theology and you know, weird things that Sunday school teachers say. And the idea is this, that like if you're born in the wrong wrong place at the wrong time, God condemns people for not being born in Christian nations, or he condemns people for being born at the wrong time, right? The scripture is pretty clear that God condemns people for seeing him, knowing he's there, and turning from him. That's what Romans 1 says. He doesn't condemn any of us for just kind of, you know, dumb luck and being born in the wrong place. No, we see him and we say, I don't want you, and we turn and run from him. That's what brings condemnation upon us. So again, they hated knowledge. They didn't choose to fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, they'll eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So Romans 1 says the wrath of God is poured out by him giving us over to our desires, which is crazy because again, we think the wrath of God is him sending a lightning bolt down saying, stop that, right? 
But actually, his worst wrath is to just give us more of ourselves. But here's the, here's the crazy thing. Often, even in getting more of ourselves and filling ourselves up with self, the suicidal obsession we have with our own inner desires, we hit rock bottom. And we realize, like, this is not working. If you're there, or if you're in the free fall halfway down, turn and ask him for help. One of the ways that the devil gets shame uh, cranked up in your heart is he starts to say, well, you're too far gone now. You've sinned too much. And just to be clear, all of us have sinned too much to be saved. But Jesus is so powerful. He can take our sins upon himself, no matter how great, no matter how shameful, no matter how embarrassing they are to you or to your family. God can set you free from that. Run to him. Ask him for help. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. They shall have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. And then here's this final little encouragement at the end, verse 33. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Again, reassurance. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. If you are thirsty, come to me for drink. Come to me. It's free. So the simple are killed by their turning away. It's our fault. It's our choice. It's what we do to ourselves. It's not something that he do, does to us. One of my favorite illustrations of this is a really gross one. So if you're real scream, uh, squeamish, like uh, plug your ears for a second. But I have a picture here of a, of a bloody knife in the snow. So if you were in a youth group in the 90s, you've already heard this. I'm sorry. But it's a great story. Apparently, uh, the idea is that some uh, people in snowy places would hunt wolves by painting a knife with blood. And in a frozen place, the blood would freeze on the blade and they could paint more uh, blood on it and basically build a, a blood popsicle, if you will, and stake that big sharp knife down to the ground uh, where it wouldn't be pulled away. And this is a way that Eskimos would hunt wolves. And so the wolf would smell the blood, come and lick the blood and lick more of the blood and enjoy the blood and lick it off the blade until the blood was gone and he begins licking the frozen blade. Um, And then it's cutting his tongue. And then the wolf is bleeding and then the, the wolf is consuming his own blood. And I know it's a horrible illustration, but it's such a clear picture of what the Bible describes in Romans chapter one and here in Proverbs chapter one. They will have the fill of their own devices The simple are killed by their turning away. The complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, will be at ease without dread of disaster. I don't know where you are in the process. You you may be like, I just just started to eat this blood. I'm just, the, the hooks of the trap are just being set into me. Maybe you're like, I'm too far gone. I'm gone, Dave. It's too late. It's, it's not too late. Number one, just cry out to God. Confess to him. First John 1 says there's two basic postures we have with sin. One is to deny it. The other is to admit it, and Jesus saves us. So admit it. I'm a sinner. I'm trying to save myself. It's not working. Turn at his reproof. Listen to his voice. Say, Jesus, will you save me? And he will. Two ways in our culture we lie about sin. First John 1, 8, and 9, and 10 says, Don't lie about sin, but admit it, confess it, right? Two ways we lie. One way that we lie that's real common in our culture right now is saying sin doesn't exist. As a category, we refuse it. We do whatever we want. We're gods. We get to set the the parameters of morality, right? 
The other way that we lie about sin, though, in this growing kind of division in our culture between like the wild people and the traditional religious people is on the religious side, we lie about sin by saying, I'm not as bad as that person, so I must be saved by my goodness. No, you're not saved by your goodness. That's another way of denying sin. Both together, we need to confess our sin to God and ask him to save us. Do I want you to be good people? Yes, don't hear me the wrong way. But don't think that's going to save you. Cry out to God, and then he'll make you good. The other thing is we need to do that in community. So 1 John 1 says cry out to God. That's the next step of this process with God personally, you and him. But we also have to do this in community. We talk about joining a group. Join a group so that you can confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. That's what the letter of James says in James chapter 5. We need to do this in community with us, uh, with each other, right? Like we don't just meet Jesus and everything's good happily ever after, but like we stumble, we need help, we need to encourage one another, we, we keep working on things, right? We have some sins that are easy to overcome, other sins that are harder to overcome, we need ongoing help. Confess your sins to God, he will forgive you and cleanse you. Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other. God will keep working in your lives. We've got recovery groups that focus on particular addiction issues. We've got Celebrate Recovery that meets on Monday nights. But just any group will do, right? You don't have to go to a specialized recovery group. You don't have to go to a Christian counselor. You can do that. Those are options, right? These are all different ways that we work this out in the Christian life. You can see an expert, see a Christian counselor. You can go to a recovery group that helps you work through addiction. Or you can just talk to a Christian friend and stop lying. That's the place to start, right? Say, like, I'm, str- I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? I'm, I'm really struggling. I need help. Take that next step. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be Id- at ease without dread of disaster. Wisdom cries out for us to seek shelter in God because a real storm is coming. We'll wrap up with, with the picture that Jesus gives us. Jesus uses the storm analogy in Matthew chapter 7. It's towards the end of his great Sermon on the Mount, famous sermon that Jesus preached He says a storm is coming. The foolish man man builds his house on the sands of his own desires, of his own thinking, of the traditions of men. The wise man builds his house on the rock of Jesus' words, of the person of Jesus himself. Jesus told the crowds, wisdom greater than Solomon is present in him. He says a storm is coming. Come to me, hear my voice, trust me, you will endure the storm. It's going to be okay. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you call us to yourself. We pray that you would remake us and teach us. There are hard things in this text that make us uncomfortable, make us squirm. Lord, show us your sweetness to us, even as we squirm. Help us to see your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.